it's like the alcohol was able to reach inside me wherever the knob is and give it a twist. And I experienced being adjusted. Now, that's that's the first spiritual experience I ever had in my life. It worked. I know why I drank is because it worked. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lords and ladies. That, by the way, why do I keep saying that lords and ladies thing? I seem to be stuck on that. But anyway, that was the voice of Mr. Gary Kay that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you are going to hear much much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode is brought to you by Kimberly and Linda. You know what Kimberly and Linda did? They went to our website, soberspeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab and they made a contribution. Thank you so so much, Kimberly and Linda, for your generous contribution. This episode, this one right here, the one everyone's listening to right now, is dedicated to you. Now, we're going to let all the other folks listen in, but thank you, Kimberly and Linda, for your generous donation. So I will be the chairperson For this meeting between meetings, and I am truly honored and privileged to be sitting in this chairperson's chair. Does that make sense? Chairperson's chair. For all of you listening in right now, uh, a couple things and we're going to get right to Gary Kay's uh, episode on steps one and two. But we got an iTunes review from Stacy T. I want to give a shout out to her. And the title of the review is Grateful. And she says, this podcast is in my daily, is in my daily diet for my soul. John M., his beautiful wife and his speakers help me through my day knowing I'm not alone and helps me work through my program and my life. I'm so happy to have found this podcast, Stacy T. Well, thank you, Stacy T for writing that. And we're so glad to have you along for the ride. All right. So, um, I know you may be getting a little tired of hearing this about this. Maybe not. I don't know. But anyway, on August 30th, we're going to have a shindig on this here planet earth. 
in Frisco, Texas, and it's uh, on our website right now is www.soberspeak.com, and it is a Soberspeak live event with Jimmy D. So people have been asking me, well, what's it going to be like? Well, we're going to have music, we're going to have uh, folks gathered up, uh, we're going to have friends and family there, and we're going to have Jimmy D, and basically I'm just going to sit on stage and interview him, much like I would do, be doing here uh, face-to-face, uh, but we're just going to have a lot of folks there listening in on that, and I hope so much that you can make it, and if you plan on being there, please send me an email to john at soberspeak.com so I can be on the lookout yeah. All right. Uh, just a little bit of listener feedback. Uh, then I'm going to do a couple of announcements and then we're going to go into Mr. Gary K's episode. So I got a, a, uh, an email this week from Mr. Jerry and Jerry says my sober date is eight eighteen seventeen. I've been a part of the AA family since I was eight years old. I am now 51. Both parents came to the fellowship when I was a child and would attend speaker meetings with my mother. I would remain sober for eight more years, 33 years of active addictions, four rehab stints, many detox visits, and the rest is history. I have lost my brother and my sister to alcohol and drugs. Dad died a sober man as well as my mother. I live in Robinson, Kansas with my wife, Debbie, of 24 years and work nights. Well, hello, Debbie. I came about your podcast by chance while looking for some online speaker recordings. Meetings during the week are difficult to attend, so this fits the bill. A meeting between meetings. Perfect! Exclamation point. I fell behind in my step work, but your conversations with David G. helped me, quote, tune in, unquote, a little better in that regard. Thank you, David G. Thank you and David G. for those conversations. Something else is in the connections many of us have without personally knowing each other. We have a uniqueness among us, which is priceless. Ah, well put, Jerry. Thank you again for bringing this podcast to the world and those who have been across the mic from you. Sincerely, Jerry F. Well, thank you, Jerry. I appreciate that. I so do. And uh, uh, you're right. We do all have a bond. I hope all you out there listening to this right now realize that we do have a unique bond. And even though that me and Jerry are unable to meet you eyeball to eyeball and face to face, I do believe we all have a spiritual bond. And I'm so glad you're listening in. JC posted in the secret Facebook group. He said, in the last three days after seven years sober, I think I was finally able to talk to God the universe to me, inexplicable feeling, big heart, big heart. So JC, that warms my heart that you, after seven years sober, in the last three days, in the last three days, have been able to talk to the God of your understanding. I can imagine that is an inexplicable feeling. All right. So one last thing, Steve R in the secret Facebook group, he writes every day 
in our secret Facebook. I, I say every day, I, I don't know. It seems like it's every day. It could be four or five times a week. I don't know. But basically what Steve R does, he's like our little, uh, I would say little, I'm so sorry. He is like our daily reflections representative. In other words, if you've ever read Daily Reflections, what they do every day in that book, that Alcoholics Anonymous book, is they have a quote from the big book or the 12 and 12 or some of the other AA literature, and then they follow it up with some commentary from one of the members of Alcoholics Anonymous below that. And Steve does that every day, or like I said, I think every day. He does it a lot, okay? And I picked out one that he wrote here in the secret Facebook group this week, and it says, and this is from page 89 of the big book, it says, to watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. Once again, page 89 from the big book. And then Steve follows it up with a little commentary. And this is what he wrote. He said, after this particular passage, I chased what I thought was happiness for decades before experiencing this simple truth. Happiness comes as a result of my living my purpose. And my purpose is to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. It's better than chocolate, <laughs> better than a great painting, greater than a sunset. Helping others frees us from the bondage of unhappiness. Help one, save two, and discover happiness. Happy Tuesday, he put. By the way, he always ends it with that, help one, save two. And I think what the meaning behind that is, is when I'm helping you, when I'm doing something to get out of myself, hopefully it not only helps you, but it helps me as well. All right. So, um, we, uh, I have a couple of asks for you here. If you haven't joined the secret Facebook group and you want to reach out to me at John J O H N at soberspeak.com. Give me the email associated with your Facebook account and I can send you the invite. Uh, obviously the secret part is to protect yours and mine uh, anonymity out of respect for the traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous. Keep in mind, there are many amazing like-minded friends of Bill W. Al-Anon and other step, uh, other 12-step programs in there. In fact, the gentleman you're about to listen to today, Gary K., is in that Facebook group, and he posts in the group on a consistent basis. Follow me on Instagram. If you are not doing that as of yet, it is at SoberSpeak, all one word. And here's what I would ask you finally. If you are getting value out of this, if you would pause your device and share either this episode or the entire podcast with a friend or family member, I would so much appreciate it. All right. So we now have Gary Kay coming to the plate. And Gary has been sober since July 25th of 1994. Mr. Gary Kay just celebrated 20 five years of sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, ladies and gentlemen, is going to talk to you about steps one and two. All I got to say is just step back and listen. Um, he is full of good quotes. 
He is full of wisdom and he is full of, no, I'm not going to say full of something else because he's not. He is full of generosity and what all he gives to this program of Alcoholics Anonymous. He works tirelessly throughout the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, not only in the Texas area, but all across the nation and internationally, quite honestly. So anyway, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Gary Kay on Steps 1 and 2. Enjoy. Well, hello, ladies and gents. Today, we are sitting here again. When I say again, we've had Gary on another episode before. We're sitting here with Mr. Gary Kay. So, Mr. Gary Kay, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and give your sobriety date, if you wish? Sure. I am an alcoholic. My name's Gary Kay. I'm really, 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 really grateful for a sobriety date and for a new life that started July 25th of 1994 out in West Texas, Odessa. July 25th, is that what you said? Correct. 1994. That's been a while, Mr. Gary, by the grace of God. Yeah, it's gone quickly. I bet. All right, so we had Gary here for... Uh, to tell his story, I guess that was I don't know, a couple, three months ago, something like that now. Uh, time has flown. Uh, and we had such a positive response to Gary and what he had to say, telling his story. And I wanted to get Gary back in here again today and kind of go through, I guess what you would call, I don't want to call it a step study. Uh, as Gary says, uh, he's just sharing his experience, strength, and hope in regards to the steps, correct? Correct. All right, so we're going to start our way at one. Uh, we're going to work our way through the steps. We'll see how far we get, and we may have to have Gary back in for another episode at some other time. But all right, so let's just start here with step one, Gary. We're going to go right into it, right? We admitted we we're powerless over alcohol and that our lives have become unmanageable. What comes to mind for you when we talk about that step? I'm very, very grateful that when I got started, I got a sponsor early on and took me a couple of weeks really to get detoxed. I always share kind of laughingly, but truthfully, he sat down with me, I remember two times for about two hours each, and he listened to me intently. And I don't believe he ever listened to me again after that. Uh, he, he took what I had said in those first two sessions and began to use it against me. <laughs> and my experience with this is we didn't talk about the steps. We got the big book out. And two times a week, Jerry and I would sit down and we started at the blank page and we started reading. And he shared with me uh, that what he wanted me to do was to come to an understanding of my own experience with alcohol. And I remember he was very specific in the beginning, saying, leave away being powerless over people, places, and things. We better get powerless over alcohol. That's what we're talking about here in the beginning. And he took me into the book. And I didn't, we didn't talk about the steps much. I do remember one thing he said over and over again. If you just take the steps off the wall, then you're going to have an off-the-wall program. So we got into the book, and I'll share my experience with step one, is that I knew nothing about alcoholism. 
I mean, I'm, I'm well educated. I'd been a therapist. I'd been a, a Methodist pastor. Had a lot of education, but I really knew nothing about what was wrong with me about alcoholism. And Jerry took me through. We started with the doctor's opinion. And he asked me, he said, what does being powerless over alcohol mean to you? And I said, well, I can't drink. And he said, that's not it. He said, obviously, you can drink. You know, you've been drinking. You can drink. And what I came to understand with him is that step one doesn't mean that I can't drink. Step one means that I'm going to drink. And the concept of powerlessness was something I don't know about you, but I had never had a discussion with another human being in my entire life about powerlessness. It's just not a lot of our language is stuff that just doesn't come up. And he took me into the doctor's opinion, and this was my experience with it. The very first description of me, and if you're an alcoholic of my type, of you, and the first part of the doctor's expen uh, opinion is that we're maladjusted to life in full flight from reality, outright mental defectives. <laughs> Not <laughs> tell, good news. Welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> you know, it's a... But then he showed me very quickly that that in itself does not make me or you an alcoholic. There's a lot of people that are maladjusted to life. There's a lot of people that are in full flight from reality. I tell people today, I know this because quite a few of them married me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a well person would stay way away from us. <laughs> and it's been my experience that if we were by a street here, everybody driving by out there is not much different than you and I when it comes to things like being maladjusted to life or in full flight from reality. Everybody has some maladjustments. And those were things that, you know, maladjusted. When, am I maladjusted because my father was an alcoholic? I don't know. Am I maladjusted because mom and dad got a divorce? I don't know. Am I maladjusted about moves made as a child? You know, all kinds of things going on. But if you've heard speakers, you've heard people say, and they always felt different. And I don't know if I felt different. I don't know that if ever kid might not think they feel different. But I do know I was always thinking about me. And Jerry was able to show me that I had some maladjustments going on long before I ever picked up a drink. And I could see that out of my own life experience of, you know, being shy, of um, being really self-obsessed about how I thought I felt f filled in uh, with other people. Um, and of telling stories. You know, one of the things that I experienced about step one is that every alcoholic lies a lot. And most of our lives started a long time before we started drinking. And then he showed me the next part of the doctor's opinion. And he began to say, this is what makes you an alcoholic. And he talked about the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. Only he didn't explain it to me. We kept reading through there so I could get my own experience with alcohol and see what that did to me 
So I could find there in the doctor's opinion that men and women drink essentially because of the effect. And Jerry took me to my very first drunk for real, the first one I did on purpose. And that was in April of 1966. I was 19 years old. And I explained it in this manner. We went out uh, in San Antonio, me and a bunch of other guys from Texas A&M. A father had bought each of us a fifth of whiskey. Mine was Southern Comfort. Long time ago in Texas, I've never had a conversation with an Hispanic person. We went out to little Mexican polka clubs, and I talked to a bunch of them that night. And my first experience with alcohol, and experience is the word that Jerry was trying to get to me. Because, and many of your listeners may be this way, I got into AA trying to learn recovery. Thought if I could read enough or journal enough or get the right answers to things, you know. Back when I got sober, there were all kinds of handouts from all kinds of treatment centers where you could just write forever. And I find them to be useless, you know, I tell folks today, I'm a retired psych therapist, and one of the things that I've experienced is that alcoholism, this chronic, progressive, fatal illness that I and you have, is not a therapeutic illness. It's a spiritual illness, and it's going to demand a spiritual answer, but I had to come to an understanding of spiritual through my own experience. And what Jerry said is, Gary, you're not going to learn recovery. You did not learn your alcoholism. You experienced it. Drink by drink, behavior by behavior, the progression of it, of day by day, week by week, month by month, over the years, you experienced your descent into the pits of hell. And you're not going to learn your way out. You're going to experience it. And to do that, he took me back to that first drunk. And what I found is that I'm the guy that can walk into a room, a bar. There could be 50 women seated at tables by themselves. I've not had anything to drink, and I cannot walk across that room and ask them to dance. I just can't do it. Number one, I think everybody's watching, and if they say no, I'm going to have to book it. Number two, I can't dance. <laughs> now, you give me about four shots of whiskey, and I start looking for a woman sitting at a table with her husband and four brothers. <laughs> you know? I call that an effect felt almost at once. And I can dance. Now, I really couldn't, but it didn't matter. You right. know? And I found out later that alcohol does that for a lot of people, you know, Bill talks in the 11th chapter that for most people, alcohol means conviviality, a feeling, you know, of being relaxed and camaraderie and all of that. There's a lot of people that need a drink or two to relax a little bit and get comfortable and lose their shyness. And I saw that that worked for me. But what makes me an alcoholic is that those people can stop at two or three. And Jerry began to ask me about that first night out, how much did you drink? Well, I drank that whole fifth of Southern Comfort. I drank a lot more beer. I drank everything they put in front of me. And my first 
experience. And that's the word that I would have people look at. Look at your own experience with alcohol. My first experience is I did not get sick. I didn't get in a fight. I didn't get arrested. I don't guess. I don't remember a minute of the night. But I had fun. And I knew I had fun because the next day they told me I had fun. And two things happened out of that next morning that I was able to see out of the rest of the doctor's opinion and on into Bill's story. We got up the next morning, and all those guys said to me, Kincaid, we don't believe that you've never drank before. You drank us under the table. Now, I know that's not everyone's initial experience, but it was mine. And what I found out later, you know, I was proud of that. And I thought I'm just one of those people that was born with a tremendous capacity for drinking. And what I found with Jerry's help going through the book is that that allergy had me from the first night out. That when I start drinking, I become a pig. You know, I just want more and more and more. And there's no stop. There's no control. And when I got here, I would hear y'all saying, I thought, Every time I went out to drink, I went out to get dad drunk, and that wasn't me. My idea was to go out, chase women, party, have some fun, and I always overshot the mark and always had some kind of excuse. But I also always said I handled it very well. You know, it should be... uh, should be no trouble when we do get to step two for us to understand that we're crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I tell my folks today, do away with one word I hear a lot in AA, and that word is denial. We are so far beyond denial, it's not even funny. The big book's got a much better word for it called delusion. That's right. And delusion is that we believe our stuff. And I believe that I was really okay drinking that much. And the people around me would tell me that I was crazy and wild and the stuff I did. And I thought they were bragging on me. And I didn't start having to go the next day and go get a fifth of whiskey, foaming at the mouth to get more. But every time I went out, I would make sure that I had plenty And if we went out and we got a keg of beer, I'm going to park by the keg because I'm going to get my share and more. That's right. And I'm going to go around to the tables. And if you're not finishing that drink, I'm going to finish it. You know, we don't want to get into all the stories. The idea is that I discovered out of my own experience what the allergy is. And I can stop here with that. He helped me see that from the first night till the last, I never could, with any degree of accuracy, tell anyone how much I was going to drink once I started drinking. I never could tell you. I might go out and have four or five and go home. The next night, I might have four or five and go home. The next night, I'd go out, have four or five, and end up in Juarez, married to a three-legged goat. And I don't know how it <laughs> happened, you know. It's just that it would take over. And promises to family or children or friends or jobs or anything else, there would be no control over the amount. The allergy would kick in. And he said, 
right there in the doctor's opinion, it says this never occurs in the average temperate drinker. Never, I didn't need a dictionary for. And the obsession of the mind, he explained with the idea, like I said, of how I got relaxed. I could do things I always wanted to do. You know, in my case, it was around women and partying. You know, I could, I, man, I became a lover almost immediately, you know, and I'm to spend the rest of my life with that delusion that I'm some kind of God's gift to women. And it is delusional, but it's pursued. And that it happened when I drank, I got that freedom and that looseness. I didn't say I found the elixir to life. It was an experience, you know, that I didn't tie together mentally. I just tied together out of the entire experience. If you're going to go out and have fun, you got to have something to drink. And in the beginning, I thought I could control it, and I was wrong. You know, part of what I am so sad about in my story, the children's mother, my first wife, did not know that I drank until we'd been married three years. Because there's a third part of that first step, and it's the insidious part of step one. Not only do I have the allergy, not only did that obsession of the mind develop out of the power of what alcohol could do for me, but the insidious part is the secrets. Bill writes that the alcoholic, more than most, leads a double life. And Jerry helped me to see that starting with the first night out, I knew I was going to do that again. I knew I wanted to do that again. But I knew there were a lot of people that did not need to know I'd done it that time. And they sure didn't need to know I'd do it again. And I have never met an alcoholic in AA that did not start lying to somebody about their drinking from the first night out. So you got a guy that's already maladjusted to life, and what I call maladjustment is being spiritually sick. You know, I was already spiritually ill before I started drinking. And when I drank that night, and this is what the obsession is for me, it's like the alcohol was able to reach inside me wherever the knob is and give it a twist, and I experienced being adjusted. Now, that's, power, that's the first spiritual experience I ever had in my life. It worked. I know why I drank is because it worked. And who wouldn't do that? Seemingly with impunity, but the impunity included lying, keeping secrets. And so I'm going to go through my life with lots of secrets and most alcoholics I've found are just like I am. The people that I kept the most secrets from were the people who loved me the most. And I had no idea that I was never going to be able to have any real intimacy with any other human being that was close to me because I'm going to have secrets. Not just the drinking, but the behavior that goes along with the drinking. And I thought, no harm, no foul. If they don't find out, no big deal. So the first wife, 
you know, I didn't have to drink every day. I could do it every six weeks or too much, you know, and plan some kind of event where I've got to be out of town and then go out for a weekend and party and nobody knows. And what happens with periodics is we don't notice it. Remember, it's a chronic illness and it's a progressive illness. And over time, the two months went to six weeks and the six weeks went to a month and the month went to three weeks and then it became weekly. And then after three years, it became necessary to tell the wife that, well, you know, I like a beer every now and then. I never liked beer. I was always a whiskey drinker, but I brought some beer home and, you know, it's okay to drink uh, reasonably. And it had me. And I would do uh, I would do horrible things that I didn't know were horrible, like leave the family to go drink. And then later on, of course, I would bring it in and I would drink. Uh, with the family, but always very reasonably, you know, I would mix the drink and I'd let her see it. Now, she didn't know that in the car or out in the shop, I had another bottle every place. But the lying has become second nature by then. And I, I'll stop there with the step one. You know, you find that to Bill's story. Uh, he talks about gradually things got worse. Well, gradually things got worse. He talks about the body and mind are marvelous mechanisms for mine endured this another two years. Well, the body and mind are marvelous mechanisms because for several more years, I could tell myself, this is not a problem. So long as you don't get caught, so long as you don't get in trouble, nobody needs to know. And it's, it's insidious that way. It takes you away from being well, from what you've got to have to be able to love and be committed to people, and that's to be present with them. And an alcoholic in our illness, if you're like me, I could never be present. My body could be there, but I'm never present because I've always got a big sack full of secrets that I'm carrying around with me. So step one, it comes out and don't know how well we've covered it. But step one for me means this. If I drink, I'm screwed. I can't tell you how much I'm going to drink. And the really bad part of step one is that if I don't drink, I'm screwed. That's the unmanageable Unmanageable for me is not the houses, the debts, the legal stuff. Unmanageable is that over time, without my permission, I grew to where it was not possible for me to experience feeling comfortable in my own skin without alcohol. No way to manage the emotions and the feelings of life without taking a drink. So either way, step one's a bad step. There's nothing sweet about it. It means you're going to drink again. And it means that if you're an alcoholic of my type, alcohol is not the problem. Alcohol does not cause alcoholism. It treats it. And the problem is sobriety. I could not stand being sober for very long. You know, and I'd try. We've all tried. 
I've promised her, I don't need to drink. I won't drink. How long? I, I won't drink for six months. Well, something would come up, and I'd have a reason for it. But what really came up is I could go, I could go three weeks, four weeks, and then the color starts going out of life. People start getting on my last nerve. You know, I get bored, just bored. That's the the restless, irritable, and discontent. In the doctor's opinion, is not what's happening when I'm drinking. It's what's happening when I'm not drinking. And I don't say I want to get a bottle so the police can be coming up the driveway this week. I don't want to get a bottle so the kids are crying and she's screaming. I'm just going to have a drink and take the edge off. And all that other stuff happens because my life's unmanageable and I'm powerless over alcohol. And once he showed me this, and he takes me all the way to page 44 of the big book, and it asked our two questions. And I'm one of those guys that came in calling myself an alcoholic addict. And I'll never forget this day when Jerry turned to page 44. And he said, Gary, if when drinking, do you see out of your own experience that you have little or no control over the amount you drink? And I said, yes. And he said, if when you've honestly wanted to, you found you couldn't quit entirely, I said, yes. He said, then you're probably an alcoholic. And if that's the case from now on, if I'm going to work with you, that's all you're going to be because Alcoholics Anonymous is for alcoholics. Stop being an and up. You don't want to do anything that puts any separation between you and anyone else in the rooms. Be a garden variety drunk. We got a real good recovery for that. And then he showed me the bad news of step two. (laughs) (laughs) Let me read this real quick. We will be continuing our conversation with Gary Kay in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak, you can find us on the World Wide Web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find many, many other listening, many, many other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website you can use if and only if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with a sect, with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, so let's go ahead and take a turn there then to step two, which is came to believe. We came to believe that there is a power greater than ourselves that could restore us to sanity. I just messed that up, didn't I? Is that uh, right? Close I, enough. I, came I'm, to believe yeah, that we power could, greater than ourselves. That's right. Power greater that could, could restore, restore us, us to, to sanity. sanity. And he introduced that to me under, if you're probably an alcoholic there on page 44. If that's the case, you're suffering from an illness which... Only a spiritual experience can conquer. And my heart kind of dropped. You know, I thought that might work for you more simple people. And I'd seen all the God stuff on the wall. 
But I'd been a pastor for 14 years, and I thought I had tried all of that. And I hadn't been joking about that. A wonderful seminary education. I'd been effective in many ways as a pastor. I'd believed in that. Thought I'd given my all to that. And since I had tried that and that didn't work, there's going to be nothing for me. And I am so grateful for a sponsor that did not want to have any theological discussions with me. He didn't want to talk to me about stuff I thought I believed. He didn't have me do any writing about what kind of God I wanted or anything like that. He said, yeah, and I told him, said, Jerry, I know everything there is to know about God. He said, yeah, but you don't know God. And then he asked me a question. He said, what does step two say? And it says, well, I need God to restore me to sanity. And he said, no, it doesn't say that. You're reading it wrong. The step does not say came to believe in. It says came to believe that. Do you now believe that alcohol is a power greater than you? And I said, yes. And he said, do you believe that there's any other power in the universe greater than alcohol. And I said, well, sure. And he said, good, we're on step three. And it was really that simple. I find in the book later, it says when a man believes or is willing to believe that this is enough to get started. And Jerry didn't want to have any theological discussions. And in my almost 25 years here, I'm going to tell you for me, I've never met an alcoholic that had any problems with God. I've had a lot of them that have problems with their thinking about God. And it's all up in the head. And it's all these things that we use to explain or rationalize. And Jerry just said, we're not going to fool with that. You know, this deal is about if you do these things you're going to have the experience that we have, and that experience is a relationship with a higher power, which will make it possible for you to not only not drink, but have a life that's somewhat happily and usefully whole, like it talks about in the, the forward in the 12 and 12. And we got started on that. That was my step two. Do you believe that? Not in. You know, I'd had this old idea that when you come to God, you know, you have this big experience and birds fly out your ears and I have all these <laughs> great things coming on. And, you know, I had to let go of, of those things and not willingly, but I did it because that's how he led me into the next step. And the next step, you know, it starts there on page 45 in the book. And I have several of these pages that he lined out to me it's got that deal of lack of power was our dilemma. And remember, we've now worked the first fourth of the book, and I've read all that, and I've found my own experience, and I know I am powerless over alcohol. And it says lack of power is our dilemma. And he had me get a dictionary and look up the word dilemma. And one meaning of the word dilemma is that a person knows there's a problem. I knew there was a problem with my drinking. And I've tried in the past, a person with a dilemma has tried to solve the problem. And the dilemma is, I don't know any other answers than the ones I've tried before. 
And so I'm going to try what didn't work before, only I'm going to do it harder and better this time. You know, the ones that didn't work before, many people have tried going to church, and I'm not putting church down, but it didn't work before, but this time I'm going to go really try it harder. Or I'm going to join a gym or get married or get divorced or have, you know, all these things. I've got an idea, that, and I'm going to do what didn't work harder. I'm in a dilemma. I don't have an answer. I don't know the answer. I'm the, I'm the lost one. I'm the bewildered one at that time. And then he shows me in the book, you got to have a power by which you can live. You know, and I stop there for a moment. And I, I consider this often. Every human being needs a power by which they can live, not just alcoholics. Life is tough. Life's hard. Life's difficult. It's too much for me as a human to get through without some help. And all those years that I was dependent upon alcohol, I would never have said that's my God. But that's the purpose it was serving. And then in those times when I would not drink, then I made the decision to not drink. And I moved to the real culprit in keeping people like me ill and eventually dying from this illness, I moved from alcohol to self-reliance. I'm going to get this done. And I'm not powerful enough to do that. And sobriety becomes untenable, and I drink again, and the cycle is over and over again. Well, the book says that's what this book is all about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself that will solve your problem. And this may be difficult, but Jerry made me do this. He said, do you see that word? It's problem. You don't have problems. You have a problem. And I had said at that time, remember, he's listened to me twice for a couple hours. And I've tried to reiterate my problems. And we're moving there in this second step, and he wants to hear about them again. And I said, well, I'm going through another divorce. The IRS has put me on their men's list. I hadn't filed for eight years. I had bad health problems. I had some legal problems. I was so ashamed to be my children's dad in the way I'd abandoned them. And Jerry stopped me, and he said, Gary, those are not problems. Those are consequences. Your entire life, you've been trying to fix the consequences, and you've never been able to identify the problem that keeps spewing them out. And AA is not very interested in your consequences. I'm not telling you that if you get sober, you're going to get your wife back. I didn't. I'm not telling you if you get sober, your kids are going to rise up and call you dad, and everything's going to be fine. It took many, many years. We're not telling you if you get sober, you're going to get a good job or you're going to stay out of jail. He said, if any of those are your reasons for coming in here, then you may as well hit the door because we can't help you with those. But I'm going to tell you, we can give you a way where you never in your life again have to do anything to change the way you feel from the neck up. And you won't believe this now, but listen to us and watch our lives If you'll surrender 
to this power we're talking about, it's going to handle and in the end heal all of those consequences. Maybe not in the way you would like, but they're all going to heal if you'll do what's necessary to find this power that will solve your problem. That is well put, to say the least. Um, we are definitely going to have to have you back, okay? Because <laughs> all we're getting through there is step one and step two. In fact, we may pick up and talk about step two a little bit more. But I think that is a good place to to end up for this particular episode. Will you come back and join me again, Gary? Certainly. I will look forward to that. So let's go ahead and wrap this one up. And I'm going to read from page 164 of the big book. And it says, Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find much as Mr. Gary is doing here, and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Gary, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Mr. Gary, thank you for stopping by.